are we naturally gullible and believing of others? Or are we naturally skeptical of new ideas and new people at a very young age? That's a, that's a great question. I think one key data point on this question is that most kids will believe in the, in the tooth fairy if you tell them there is a tooth fairy. And that seems to suggest that we're born more on the gullible side. Now, uh, there's probably good evolutionary reasons for that. When kids are trusting, especially of the parents and the people around them early in life, they can absorb information much more rapidly and learn what they need to to become adaptive adults. So the evidence seems to suggest that we're born on the gullible side and need to actually develop a more critical frame of mind. That would almost imply a pretty intense responsibility on a parent to build a mental immune system. I guess when you're born, a lot of your physical immune system is foundational. But is it true that the foundational years are based on what a parent or a guardian uh, says to build the strength of a mental immune system? Yeah, that, that's a great question. Well, so it turns out the body has two different immune systems. There's an innate immune system that basically protects you against microbes that your gene line has already experienced in the past and developed an immunity to. But it also has an adaptive immune system that lets you learn, that essentially learns from experience. So when you're exposed to, uh, I don't know, chickenpox and develop immunity to further infections to chickenpox, that's your body's immune system learning from past experience. And it turns out the mind has the exact same two systems. We're, we're essentially born resistant to the idea that you should dance with wild abandon on cliff edges, right? We already know that's a bad idea. <laughs> uh, we know not most of us are born with the idea that handling snakes is a bad idea. But in a complex information connect, uh, internet connected world, um, our, our inherited or innate in ability to spot bad ideas is not enough. We actually need to educate our mental immune systems so that they can spot the many devious forms of mind parasites that are out there. When you think about a, a child's growth and mental immunity, do you find there's a key age and important formative years for this? Or is it all just as important? Or is there a certain age that is very important as a parent to, to grow this thing. I wish I knew more about the developmental aspect of, of this. I do think we can start exposing kids to the art of conversational idea testing much younger. So my experience is that a whole lot of education up through high school is pretty rote in nature, unless you have, you know, you happen to get some really good teachers. And then in college, the environment changes a little bit where many, some college professors, at least, are much more encouraging of sort of active idea testing. And that's where critical thinking really starts to take hold among many of us in our development. But there's actually a movement for philosophy for children, for example, where you, get at, where you actually get kids asking tough questions about what's real and what isn't real and what's right and what isn't right. And kids are naturally fascinated by these questions, and you can turn them on to the to the joy of collaborative idea testing young. And I think that that can do a lot to enhance our mental immunity. That is very cool, introducing philosophy and psychology to younger people. I don't know if I knew what the word philosophy meant until like the ninth grade. I didn't hear it once in, in my high school or middle school experience. 
And of course, it's rare to actually get a philosophy course in high school. Not many high schools offer that kind of thing. And I think that's something we need to correct. When I think about filtering good ideas and bad ideas, the idea of a mental immune system, until I found your work and heard you speak, I kind of blamed it entirely on social media. I really firmly believe this technology was causing almost all of this. After hearing you speak, it seems like social media is just a current technology, but this is almost tribal or there's almost something in our genes about belonging. Uh, is that accurate? And do a lot of people blame this fully on social media without looking far deeper? Yeah. Well, I do think that social media is is a big part of the story of our present moment. And and by our present moment, I mean in this kind of crazy post, post-truth world we find ourselves in, right, where, where ridiculous ideologies flourish often at our expense. The I do think we need to take a hard look at the way in which social media and other forms of media are moderated. Um, unmoderated uh, social media interactions often descend into flame wars, and that tends to expose us to the worst. It brings out the worst in us, and, and it's not serving us well. But of course, many civil libertarians worry about um, free speech rights, and that if, you know, if, if moderators basically decide that some people aren't welcome on certain social platforms, they often get a lot of criticism for exercising their, their prerogatives as, as content moderators. So the real alternative to, to regulating disinformation at the source is to try to regulate disinformation by building up our immunity to disinformation, bad ideas, divisive ideologies, conspiracy thinking, that kind of thing. So, um, and this brand new science is coming along that basically says we can understand how mental immune systems work and we can figure out how to make them work better. Not because I'm trying to manipulate you into serving my political agenda, but because those who care about the well-functioning of minds and mental health can actually research this and find uh, the uh, actual evidence for what helps our minds do a better job of spotting and removing bad ideas, and then also spotting and welcoming in good ideas. When we talk about like post-truth and misinformation online, I've always had this hack, and it's not working very well, by the way, where I would use history as a way to comfort me through challenging circumstances. So I would see something that was happening, and I would say, oh, it was far worse for my grandparents because XYZ happened. It kind of sounds like, or maybe you'll correct me, that maybe we even, looking back on history, we actually might be in a peak of misinformation and a peak of polarization, and that isn't very comforting. But I'd ask you, historically, if we in fact are in, in a very rare time. Yeah, well, there's no question. So when you look at the past through the lens provided by this, this cog, I call it cognitive immunology, the science of mental immunity, it turns out that societies have been riven by divisive ideas and divisive ideologies going back thousands of years. And magnificent civilizations have been destroyed by ideological thinking. So the problem isn't new in that regard. But of course, our our hyperconnectedness via the internet is very, very new, and that's creating all kinds of uh, worrisome forms of dislocation. 
Each time a new information technology comes along, the printing press, uh, written language was a, once a novel information technology, radio, telegraph, each, television. Each time something like this comes along, um, disinformation gets a head start and starts to spread um, in ways that cause great deals of harm. And it takes a while for humanity to develop the right um, mental habits to rein in the disinformation. And right now, the, the peddlers of disinformation have the upper hand because our mental immune systems um, are not yet, haven't yet adapted to this internet-connected world. So it, I think it's imperative that we invest in this new science and, and its applications to make us um, better citizens of, of the new global world. It's super interesting that you said we haven't caught up yet when you think about our natural desire to eat as much as humanly possible, that is deep within us. And we're still kind of catching up with the idea of agriculture and technology. Like, uh-oh, we have to limit what we eat for longevity. We don't have to consume. So yes. it, that that's a really kind of an aha moment, realizing that we are still trying to catch up with the technology of food in the West, let alone the technology of the internet or us having a podcast with thousands of people listening. Uh, it's very interesting to think that this is a catch-up game in many ways. Yeah. And, and uh, evolutionary psychologists call this the mismatch problems. So, so the idea is that uh, our minds evolved in environments that were involved small tribal villages. And we developed a set of inclinations about how to deal with people and how to deal with information that, were well, that was fairly well adapted to that environment. And then when you take creatures like us and put us in a, or, and build around us a dramatically different cultural environment, a lot of times our sort of inbuilt inclinations, our inbuilt tendencies of mind don't serve us well. And so, um, you know, evolution instilled a love of sweets in us because fruits were an important uh, form, uh, source of nutrition. But turn those same that same sweet tooth loose in a world where there are candy bars on every corner, and all of a sudden you've got a huge obesity problem, right? And in the same way that we have to mod learn to modulate our desires for sweet foods to be healthy, we have to modulate our desires for, I don't know, uh, uh, ideologically gratifying fake news in order to to be mentally healthy. Is this mismatch a solvable problem or is this a part of just being human? We're always going to be behind and we need to find a way just to slow the gap. But this is throughout human history going to be an issue now with AI and all the other things. It sounds like the mismatch is it's here to stay. Yeah. Well, so I think the, the basic cause of the mismatch is that evolution is that our cultures can evolve way much more rapidly than our bodies can. Or, or that our minds can. So our, our, our bodies and our minds are always trying to catch up to current cultural conditions. Um, and you know, a big, one reason we're born so gullible is that, uh, is that it gives our parents a chance to help shape the mind, that a child's mind, in a way that will help them navigate the world that they inherit. Um, so w to some degree, that gullibility gives us the kind of mental... Uh, adaptability, the mental plasticity needed to catch up. But, you know, every generation faces the similar problem 
Only now the problem is kind of on steroids with the internet and, uh, you know, and, and people are, are reaping huge windfalls by peddling information that manipulates your mind right now. And if you don't choose your, your news sources widely, wisely, excuse me, um, you're likely to be taken in um, by their propaganda. Before we dive fully into mental immunity, I have a very unscientific question, uh, which I hope you'll give me a, a guess or an answer. Do you think on a wide scale, those who are gullible are measurably happier, just in a well-being sense? Uh, it's kind of the whole is ignorance bliss question. I imagine being a skeptic can weigh on you. And even when you're looking at things, you're probably looking at it through a scientific lens or even when you're you're writing your book, it was heavy research based instead of just a fun uh, typing experience. So are people that are more gullible or ignorant potentially measurably happier in quality of life scale? That's a, that's a great question. Um, so there's some reason to think that um, being religious can make you happier. So religious people are, are on average a little happier than secular people. That might be due to, to the religion, religious ideas themselves, or it might be due to other things. We, we don't know for sure. Actually, we do know that the happiness, the greater happiness that your average religious person experiences is due mainly to the social connections, uh -huh. the, the sense of community that those religions provide. So if you build a community that satisfies that need for belonging, but dispense with kind of the metaphysical uh, uh, trappings of of gods and heaven and hell and that kind of thing, you can still de derive almost all of the happiness benefits. You, you don't need the, the metaphysical beliefs to be happy. That's a partial answer to your question. Um, I, I do think that the other really neat aspect of your question is that you, you're asking if it's possible to be too suspicious or too critical for your own good. And the answer to that is yes, it is. Um, uh, just as it's possible to be too trusting and too gullible and thereby easily manipulated by propagandists, it's possible to be, to be so suspicious and so cynical that you undermine your own uh, grasp of reality. Think of flat earthers, right? Or so critical and so suspicious that you undermine your own happiness. Um, think of the, you know, the sourpuss... Uh, hyper cynical atheist curmudgeon who loses all his friends because he's so hell bent on disabusing everybody of their dilute of their illusions. Um, so there's a happy medium between too too trusting and too suspicious. Uh, and in the book, I take a deep dive on the f philosophy that helps us figure out where the sweet spot is. Um, and uh, it's it you don't need to engage in heavy duty scientific jargon to describe that sweet spot in ways that people can benefit from. But I wrote the book in part for those who really want to understand the, the science and the philosophy at the foundation of this problem. Yeah, I definitely take away from that answer that balance is the key. Being highly skeptical, uh, it doesn't seem like a, a sustainable way to live a, a happier, peaceful life. Um, Going back to mental immunity, I think those who might just click the thumbnail or see the title might think this is like a metaphor self-help book. But what they don't understand, this is, there's real research. This is a scientific book. This is not a self-help book. 
So I, I'd like you to talk about the that contrast between what people might think when looking at the cover versus the reality and the deep research you put in to actually prove this. Yeah, thank you. Um, I, I, my training is as, as an academic philosopher, and I've had to work hard to actually communicate with real people as opposed to academic specialists. And I, I think I've managed to come a fair way there. Um, uh, and we philosophers are kind of allergic to self-help books. Um, and and my book tries to avoid becoming kind of syrupy, self-helpy. In, at, at the end, in the conclusion, I, I do outline some very practical steps that people can take both to, uh, to develop their immunity to bad ideas and to become a, and to develop, to actually learn how to grow, not just in terms of your grasp of reality, but also in terms of your, your moral, you can, it turns out you can grow morally just as you can grow in terms of your understanding of reality. Um, so I talk about both of those things, but, but, but let me mention a couple of the scientific findings that really add heft and weight to this new science of mental immunity. Um, back in the 1960s, a psychologist named William McGuire discovered something fascinating. He found that if you expose a mind to a weakened form of an argument, the mind will often become resistant even to strong versions of the same argument. Do you see the, the, the parallel here with, with body inoculation? So he called it inoculation theory, and he basically said, hey, if you want to um, inoculate people against communism, just take a few silly arguments for communism, ridicule them, make them look silly, and, and your audience will become more resistant even to credible or, or creditable wow. arguments communism. So it turns out people can use this mind inoculation techniques to hijack our mental immune systems, but we can also get our mental immune systems to do a better job of, of we, we can teach our minds to inoculate against disinformation and falsehood, not just ideas that we find threatening or politically inconvenient. So it it sounds like fear is a way to hack your your mental immune system and that's probably why uh you know the media and clickbait and there's a business model even politicians unfortunately use fear to generate votes is it safe to say that fear is the most surefire hack to get people to believe things that are are potentially absurd yeah so for a long long time uh, demagogic politicians have been have used fearmongering to agitate their base and and turn them into more ardent supporters. So scapegoating immigrants, right? The immigrants are coming to take your jobs, and um, th- that that's a time tested technique for hacking the minds. And we and those of us who don't want such demagogues to take over the world need to fight back by actually helping people understand when they're being manipulated by fear-mongering. Um, I will, I'll say this also, disdain turns out to be a very powerful way to hijack, to hijack mental immune systems. So if you, if you present somebody else's position or argument and, and use a disdainful attitude, a lot of times that will decisively reshape your audience's attitude of the person you're heaping disdain on. Wow. 
even if it's unfair to disdain them in that way. So watch out for disdain. If somebody's using disdain to to demonize someone or turn you against them, um, uh, become suspicious of what they're trying to do. They're 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 manipulating you probably to their own benefit more than they're actually casting light on what's the real situation. In some ways, some can use your book as a defense for the traditional political playbook. In some ways, this is a book about influence on a political end or even a marketing sense. Uh, and this is almost a defense for, which is kind of sad to say, but it does sound like it, it, what you're saying, every time you've said something about fear or disgust or different disdain, I'm like, oh, this, that's like a politician's line in immigration. That's another line you hear. I'm in Canada. I'm a Canadian. I hear that here. I hear it in the U.S. on Twitter. Um, do, do you find that a lot of the things you write about are unfortunately used in modern politics to rally votes? Yeah, so it turns out that culture wars create behaviors that compromise our mental immunity. So if, if you're taught by your political tribe to heap disdain on, on the other political tribe, or if you start using reasons as weapons to win rather than as tools for finding out. So, so here's, the, here's the takeaway on this. The wisest people with the strongest mental immune systems always use reasons to find out or to help people understand. And uh, what... And, and people who use reasons instead as weapons to defeat a perceived enemy or as shields to defend themselves, um, they end up being the most, they end up compromising their own immunity to bad ideas. They start to view everything through a tribal lens and they become blind to their own tribe's uh, uh, shortcomings. I had a, a pretty big moment. I'm not sure if this was from one of your talks or if I read this somewhere, but you know, we talked about how religious people tend to be a little bit happier because of maybe it's social, maybe it's religion. And I heard about conspiracy spirituality or conspiracy and religion having similarities. And that was a really big moment for me because it took kind of the humor out of what I viewed as insane conspiracies and it's very easy to laugh things off, but when you say, oh no, this is similar to a religion or this is similar to a cult in some ways, that's when I said, oh, well, well, then I have a little more empathy for this situation. Uh, so at first I'd ask, did I hear that from you? And are there similarities between religion, cults, and deep conspiracy social groups? Yeah, so I, I, I'm not a religious person myself, and, and a lot of the non-religious people I hang out with see cults and religions and conspiracy theories as all kind of very similar phenomena. Now, there are, are differences also, and, and in fairness, we need to recognize those differences. Um, but uh, there was an article just in the last week or so that QAnon this absolutely crazy idea that, you know, our government is run by a cabal of Satan-worshipping pedophiles. I mean, just doesn't even pass the reality sniff test. But it has so many followers now that it is bigger than a lot of main, than some mainstream religions in America. I mean, that's, that's crazy, right? Um, and it's Clearly, it started as a conspiracy theory. You can follow the history of QAnon and 
you know, using forensic tools and digital tools, you can actually examine how this idea, which was kind of seductive at first, but small scale, started to infect minds and spread and, and actually mutates into even more infectious forms, spreads even further. And now so many people have begun to hitch their identities to this conspiracy theory that it is very hard to distinguish from a cult. Is it appropriate to have empathy or understanding for people that are in conspiracies like that if there are similarities to a cult? I, I just I I don't know even just personally how to deal with some of the insanity, whether it is good to use humor or whether it's good to use better ideas, or if just um empathy is is kind of our most realistic route. How how should somebody morally deal with what you view as an insane conspiracy theorist? Yeah, um, that's a wow, that's a terrific question, Peter. Um, so I think many smart, or at least clever, and well intentioned people can get sucked into a conspiracy theory. And the compassionate response to something like that, especially if it's a family member or a close friend, is, is not to ridicule. Uh, in fact, if you do ridicule, or or just brush them off as kooky, you're not gonna, you won't gain the kind of trust needed to help them climb out of that hole. So you have to be willing to listen sympathetically and without judgment if you want to help crazy Uncle Frank from coming out of his QAnon rabbit hole, right? Um, at the same time, many people descend into conspiracy theory rabbit holes because they don't conduct their cognitive affairs in responsible ways. So if, if you indulge in irresponsible believing habits and then get sucked down a rabbit hole, you're partially responsible for that. So I'm, I'm, I think it's fair to say that those who succumb to, to mind viruses of various kinds are partially responsible for that. I, I wouldn't blame the four-year-old who believes in the truth fairy for, for their kooky idea. I would use compassion and uh, and understanding and maybe even a little indulgence of, of that belief for a time. Uh, but, you know, but there are other people who are just outright blameworthy for stoking conspiracy theories because they know better and they do it anyway because they're getting rich or gaining political power as a result. That is a, a really great distinction. The person that gets sucked in because you know they lost their job or, or they they have an addiction in some form and that is someone that you should support and and try to help impact if you can but the idea of once you start monetizing once this is your business model for clickbait for your your selling products that is a really good line to draw from empathy to once this is your business model you're a dangerous person right well, and of course, there are plenty of people out there who are buying into conspiracy theories and, sp and helping to spread them, not because they're making money at it or getting rich, but because it, um, it boosts their standing in a community of fellow conspiracy theorists. That's a, that's a form of gain. That's a form of self-benefit that is morally problematic because you're harming our society's larger capacity to reach agreement about the things that matter most because you're indulging in because you're indulging in some highly questionable 
information spreading tactics without doing your homework on what's what's true and what isn't true. So there's a there's a degree of blameworthiness there, I think, even if you're not uh, making money at it. So so you're saying within the conspiracy there are actual status games. You can not earn money, but you can actually become more popular or somehow gain status within the conspiracy. So a friend of mine, uh, uh, an academically trained philosopher of science, went undercover at a flat earth convention. Fascinating story, right? His name is Lee McIntyre. He's got a book coming out called How to Talk to a Science Denier. Wow. Great guy. But he went undercover at this flat earth convention and he started talking to people. In fact, he invited a, a headline speaker, a keynote speaker out to lunch and talk to him. And the guy ended up basically admitting to my friend that, yeah, you know, he just loves the ad all the attention he gets by peddling flat earth theory. He loves, it's gratifying to him. He kind of believes it, but he also kind of knows he's, he's pushing questionable crap into people's minds. But he, he loves the social standing he gains. He, he's sometimes paid honoraria, speaking fees for traveling around the world, speaking at flat earth conferences. These are some of the things that seduce people down very irresponsible uh, thought habits, thought patterns. It, it's so interesting getting deeper in this conversation because you almost become more understanding every minute because, I mean, of course somebody wants to gain more resources financially. That's human. Of course someone wants more status. They want to feel belonging. They want to feel part of something bigger than them. It is, it's so interesting that a laughable idea on the surface has this baked-in seduction that is just powerful for so many people. Yeah, I think the need to belong and the need to feel like you're mattering in some way are two of the deepest human drives of all. And they're so powerful and so seductive that they often lead us to embrace delusive worldviews. So we know that human tribalism can lead you to think in irresponsible ways. But it's also true that just, just the even more fundamental need to belong, the even more fundamental and, uh, and need to, to feel like you're making a difference in the world or that you can make a difference in the world, those things, people will believe anything if it allows them to believe that their life means something. Um, the problem is they often embrace beliefs that harm others in the process, and that's not morally uh, defensible. So if you find that you're, you're meeting your need to belong or your need to matter by indulging irresponsible thinking, you have some work to do to reshape your own mind. The number one thing that I see in terms of pushback for, I guess, the argument for the conspiracy world, and it is almost, I don't know if it's a fair argument, but it is an argument. It is this grain of truth. There's, there's a grain of truth that almost hacks the ability to believe. And a lot of people will bring up the Epstein situation about how we laughed at guys like Alex Jones and we laughed at these forums 10 years ago. And then they show a side by side the New York Times article headline is Alex Jones titled 10 years ago. So do you think a, a major challenge within the conspiracy world is that they do find 1% grains of truth and there have been outliers that you can cherry pick that uh, paint a picture that, oh, there's a need for this in some way. Yeah. So the most successful biological 
uh, the most successful viruses uh, can camouflage themselves so that the body's immune system can't screen them out. And the most successful mind viruses uh, can mimic good ideas. So, so some of the most influential bad ideas have a grain of truth to them or otherwise pass through the mind's filters by pretending to be good and virtuous or, 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 hap or, or truth or true generally. And sometimes a grain of truth is enough to help it help a really bad idea sneak past the mind's defenses. So, so, so if you're looking at one of Alex Jones's rants and he actually shows you a grain of truth, don't immediately assume that it lends support to the entire kit and caboodle. It probably doesn't, especially given Alex Jones's track record. Uh, and, and, and understand, right, that the sneakiest and, and most harmful mind parasites are actually do a, a good job of snookering you. They, they, they look true, they look beneficial, but on care, more careful scrutiny, turn out to be the, op the opposite. There's something I wanted to ask you about that's a lot more current. I remember being in uh, probably like a grade six science class or chemistry. And the idea for us, the scientific attitude or the scientific theory was rigorous criticism at all times. And that just stuck with me since the age of 12 up until 26. And there's some there's a, a quote that's been kind of going around online that I, I definitely want to ask you about. And it made me kind of question uh, what's been going on. And it's this trust science, those two words, trust science. And as a kid, at least in my middle school, those two words uh, weren't allowed to be next to each other without criticism. So I wanted to ask you about the general, uh, maybe it's political, maybe it's social, maybe it's tribal now, but do the words trust science, are those two words supposed to be together in a scientific sense? Um, I would say absolutely they should be. Um, science is one of the most astonishing institutions in our world. And its track record for weeding out falsehoods and finding truths is just unmatched. Um, I know because I worked for 30 years every day, I worked with scientists and fellow professional inquirers. And very, very few of them have sort of ulterior political motives that distort the information and the understanding they're trying to develop. Men Almost all of them are there because they genuinely want to understand their motives are in the right place. Now, scientists make mistakes, and we shouldn't trust science blindly. But if you don't have the time to do the research yourself, you can take it on faith or trust that, that for the most part, the community of science has done a pretty good job of vetting the idea. Now, they don't always get it right. But... But one of the things that makes science successful is that they crowdsource the search for truth. No one person can basically declare something a scientific truth. It has to be tested by lots of people and put through the ringer of peer review and all that thing. And with lots of different people, each of whom's trained to test ideas, collaborate on idea testing, you can raise the bar and on what counts as a responsible idea much higher than we, te than we tend to in ordinary everyday life. And this is why science is something really precious, really, it, I mean, it's a light in the darkness that I think 
uh, Carl Sagan, the late science popularizer, called it a candle in the dark. And almost all the other sources of information that attempt to compete with science are far less responsible, far less rigorous, and far less trust worthy of our trust than sciences. That's a great point. Do you believe the for the strength of our mental immune system that total free speech is necessary? So I think so one of the arguments I develop in the book, so I'm a big free speech fan and my political tribe of free thinkers. Um, I guess that's more of a quasi-religious tribe, but believes that that free speech and the open that that the that the free marketplace of ideas and criticism left to itself is a good thing. That's that's my starting point on this issue. Um, but I've also come to realize that we emphasize our cognitive rights in this in today's day and age almost to the exclusion of our cognitive responsibilities or our speech rights to the exclusion of our responsibilities with regard to, to speech. Um, I think that it's really, really important right now for us to be emphasizing accountable talk. And we should be, ex we should be offering the biggest platforms to people who show that they can meet shared standards of, of responsible speech. And we should relegate to the smaller, less significant platforms those who consistently abuse the standards of accountable talk. I happen to support Twitter's ban and Facebook's ban on Donald Trump because I think he's abused the soapbox he's been provided over a number of years in ways that have damaged our mental immune systems. And I can talk very specifically about how he did that. Um, but we shouldn't automatically assume that when a private company like Facebook uh, bans Donald Trump or suspends him for a time, that they are infringing on his speech rights. Because, you know, you, Peter, have a certain platform, this show, Welcome Home. You're not obligated to provide Donald Trump access to that platform. People who run different platforms are... Uh, now, the government shouldn't be in the business of telling, telling Donald Trump he can't speak, but a private companies like Twitter and Facebook, I think, have some responsibility to ensure that the people who are using their platform aren't weaponizing it. Um, and so I, I actually support the ban, even though I consider myself as sufficiently aware of the importance of free speech uh, as, as anyone I know. Is there any truth or any risk of banning somebody or banning a topic that it makes the people that believe that person or that topic more motivated or to go deeper into the shadows and hide? Because that's the one thing I hear a lot that these people's beliefs didn't go away when it wasn't on Twitter. They just went darker and, and further right in many senses. Yeah, I think that's a legitimate concern. I, I, and maybe that's a sufficiently powerful reason to to moderate my own views on this. I'd, I'd have to look at that more carefully. But that's a worry, and and of course, it's also when you start to regulate speech in various ways to promote a more harmonious world, 
there's always a danger that it will you'll slide down a slippery slope and end up with some Orwellian hellhole, you know, hellscape. Um, uh, in the book, I argue that thought police are not welcome in the in the idea space I envision. But we can, I, I, I say we can terrace the hillside that we think is so slippery, that the slide down the, the hillside to, to kind of an Orwellian uh, tyranny or, or government control of the thought space, it doesn't have to be as slippery as we, some, as some of the most alarmist people claim. Does that make sense? Totally. Um, so as, as we're wrapping up, I have the link to your book in our description, Mental Immunity. But I want to ask you about one piece of information inside the book that can help us have a slightly stronger mental immune system as we wrap up. But of course, purchase the full book in our description. Uh, what, one, what, what one thing would I share? One positive thing, a simple thing that we can implement to make us just a bit stronger. Yeah. Well, let's start with this one. Um, doubts are the antibodies of the mind. They're there. When, when, when you have a little, when a little voice in the back of your head says, something's not quite right here, you know, this doesn't quite ring true, listen to that doubt. Don't squash it because it makes you uncomfortable. The, the world's wisest minds learn to listen to their doubts because those doubts are often drawing attention to genuinely problematic features of an idea. So when you shut down doubts, you, your mind's immune system starts to fail. It starts to function at less than peak capacity. If you learn to listen to your doubts, you don't always treat them as, take them at face value because doubts can become, can spiral out of control as well. But learn to listen to your doubts and investigate what they, what they're trying to tell you. Test ideas and your mind's immune system will get stronger. This is a silly final question. Where do you think our doubts spring from? Is it from wisdom, personal experience? Where, where do you think a doubt pops up? Wow, that's a, that's a lovely question. Uh, I, I've had a chance to think about this a little bit. I think when we encounter complication or conflict or dissonance in the world, when, when we encounter a situation and it feels conflicted, part of our mind's register that as a possible threat and start, start to generate doubts and questions. And again, uh, doubts and questions often make people uncomfortable. So they, a lot of times they sweep them under the rug and prefer certitude and simplicity and certitude. But th that mental habit won't serve you well over the long run. It might buy you some short-term relief from uncertainty, but it almost always comes at the expense of long-term understanding. So, so, um, I think the mind generates questions and doubts when it detects problems. And, and you can actually make that problem detection system in your mind more sensitive. I, I like to say you can actually make your non onboard nonsense detector more sensitive through deliberate practice and the cultivation of conversational idea testing.